evening. Not that I would necessarily recommend a movie, but I'm sure that uh, action movie fans out there have probably seen uh, the movie Taken. came out maybe a little over a decade ago. And um, Liam Neeson's uh, the star actor, and he plays the role of a CIA agent seeking after his... uh, 18-year-old daughter. Well, she gets taken on a, on a trip when she goes to Europe and is abducted. And this CIA agent father, Liam Neeson, travels over there to search after her, track down um, the man who did it and, uh, and save his daughter and get, uh, and get his own sort of form of justice. And of course, many of us fathers, uh, when we see stories like this, movies like this, we cheer on and think that's, uh, that's, the, sort of, uh, that's the sort of thing we like, right? We want to see the, the, the lady rescued and uh, the lustful man get his uh, just desserts. Well, there's a story similar to that one, in some regards at least, in Scripture. A man, a lustful man, who takes a young lady... And uh, after he takes this young lady, it seems that not her father, but rather her grandfather seeks uh, his own form of vengeance. And what is very different from the way that, say, movie goes is that rather than the grandfather getting this woman back, the man eventually marries the woman and the grandfather dies. And um, it's not the sort of thing that we might think to be a happy ending. It's perhaps the sort of thing that we might say is a, a scandal. The sort of thing that we might say is a, is a tragedy. Well, brothers and sisters, as I think we'll see in considering the scripture this evening, well, there may be a sense in which it is a, a scandal and there is tragedy involved. This is, in fact, part of what is David's testimony. King David, who pens Holy Scripture, the scripture we'll look at this evening is Psalm 41. And, uh, and though in some ways there is tragedy involved, brothers and sisters, I assure you that as we consider this psalm, we will see that there's good news. Because there's good news for David, there is also good news for sinners like you and me. Now, this will take, no doubt, some explanation. And, uh, and I say that as, by way of introduction because I think sometimes we've become so familiar with certain stories in Scripture, so familiar with certain biblical truths that we lose a sense of uh, shock or even um, awe when it comes to the uh, raw realities of the gospel and how it impacts our own lives as sinful people in need of a savior, in need of the grace of God. We become so accustomed to the grace of God that we don't see how incredible, really, it is that God would justify the ungodly through the death of his son. And so this evening, I'd like uh, everyone, if you haven't already, please turn to Psalm 41. This is uh, the testimony of a sinful king. I gave my testimony this morning. I thought maybe this evening we might consider King David's testimony as he unpacks some of it in the Holy Scriptures, Psalm 41. 
to the slandered, to the scandalized, to the sin-sick, God's grace extends to you. I think that's what we see in Psalm 41. To the slandered, the scandalized, the sin-sick, God's grace extends to you. If you would believe in him and cry for his mercy. I'm going to pray and then we'll read the scripture together and we'll work through it and consider some application for our lives and marvel at the grace of our God towards sinners like you and me. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I pray that in a fresh way your word might impact each and every one of us, that we would marvel at your grace, that we would set aside any self-righteousness, any uh, pretension, any pride that, that is in our hearts and realize that we too are sinners in need of a Savior. And there are many around us who, like us, will stumble into sin and need your grace so dearly. Lord, may we be eager to see them find that grace in you. And Lord, for any that, that are here that have not yet laid hold of your grace through Jesus Christ, trusting in him, I pray that today might be the day that they do. And so, God, we entrust this time in your hands, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Psalm 41. To the choir master, a psalm of David. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? And one comes to see me, he utters empty words, while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me, they imagine the worst for me. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. This is uh, Psalm 41. You may have noticed there in your Bibles, the, it is the last book of what's referred to as Book 1 of the Psalms. The Psalms are divided down into five books, five sort of collections. And um, that last verse, verse 13, really, I think, is a conclusion to the section not to the psalm itself so i won't say much more about psalm, about verse 13 
But uh, this is um, like almost all the Psalms in Book 1, a Psalm of David. It tells us that at that note at the beginning. A Psalm of David. Now, I uh, am convinced both from David's life and from a, um, the content of the psalm that there are certain events in his life which give a very reasonable backdrop to his prayer here and the description of his circumstances. No doubt we all are very familiar from um, studying the scripture of David's sin, uh, his adultery, and um, that comes out in other psalms as well, notably Psalm 51. And, um, and of course, that was a, a turning point in his life where many things went downhill from there. And so, uh, for a variety of reasons that included, it seems to me that, that uh, his requests here and the description of his remarks has that incident and the, the consequences of it in, in mind in the background, something that everyone would be familiar with, no doubt who reads a psalm such as this one. So this reads like David's testimony. There are parts at the beginning and the end where it seems like he's sort of giving the moral of the story. But right in the middle, he, he goes into the heart of the situation where he's describing those events as, uh, as if to take us back to them with him himself. Verse 4 says, As for me, I said, this is what he had prayed in the past, and now we look back with him uh, to the answer of his prayers. And so I'm going to work through the psalm in three sections. The first few verses really give us a bit of a proverb, maybe you could say the moral of the story, the moral of his testimony, the lesson to be learned. The verses after that, verse 4 through 10, are his prayer in the midst of this situation. And the psalm concludes with an expression of praise to God, verse 11 and 12. So the proverb, the prayer, and the praise. The first three verses, we get the moral of the story, not at the end, but at the beginning. He says, blessed is the one who considers the poor. The day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He's called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. So the moral of the story is that God, uh, to sum it up in the words of Jesus perhaps, God is, uh, is merciful to those who are merciful, or, or blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, as is in the Beatitudes, he says, Blessed is the one who considers the poor, those who are compassionate, those who are considerate, those who are expressing the character of God out of, out of a heart which has been transformed by him, are uniquely cared for and sustained and delivered by the Lord. And that's because God has already changed them. God protects them because they're his. They have his heart. David was, as we, as we read, a man after God's own heart. And that was before all this happened, right? That's perhaps what's so astounding about this story with Bathsheba is this happened after David's called a man after God's own heart. And, um, 
And so David is a man characterized by the character of God because of God's work in his life already. And I think particularly of one instance where we see him considering the poor, showing mercy to the less fortunate, and that's um, his treatment of a man named Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was the uh, grandson of King Saul. And of course, King Saul came before King David, and David... uh, David knew Saul and was in his army and, um, and was his servant. And eventually Saul sought to kill David because he saw David um, gaining prominence. So Saul and uh, Saul was uh, an enemy of sorts to David, not because David was trying to get rid of Saul, but because Saul saw David as a threat. And eventually when the Lord replaced Saul with David... You might expect in the in the ancient Middle uh, Middle East for for kings to get rid of any possible um, competitors to the throne. That would have been very normal to get rid of perhaps the um, the sons of a former king, anyone who might try to rebel and and raise up um, resistance to his reign. Well, David, rather than getting rid of all Saul's descendants, he looks for one of Saul's descendants to honor, to to treat with kindness, to show mercy towards. And he finds this man, Mephibosheth, who not only is the grandson of Saul, but is also lame in both of his feet. And he finds him, and, um, and he brings him to eat at his table and treats him as his own family the grandson of this man who tried to kill him, Saul. This is the mercy of King David toward the less fortunate, toward the poor. David was a man after God's own heart. He showed God's mercy in, in his own life, and that was perhaps one of the great examples of, uh, of such mercy. And so when David says, Blessed is the one who considers the poor, in the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. He, he sees perhaps the principle that we have summarized by Jesus. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. David recognizes that he is one of the Lord's. Even with everything that eventually will happen, he is one of the Lord's. God has regenerated him. God has made him his own. God has filled him um, with, uh, with his, um, his own character to represent him, and um, though in, in many other ways he falls short, nonetheless he is a man after God's own heart. So God delivers him in the day of trouble. He protects him, he keeps him alive. He doesn't hand David over to the will of his enemies when later on there are rebellions against King David, when later on David stumbles into sin. One might expect that as Saul... Um, the Lord might reject him, but the Lord does not reject him. The Lord protects him instead. He sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, he restores him to full health. Now, part of the reason why I've suggested the, the context uh, that I have in the background is here it speaks of, the, of a sickbed. And, and immediately after, as we get into the second section, David's prayer request in verse 4 is, Heal me, for I have sinned against you. Heal me. 
And the only time really in David's life where you might suggest that he is sick, that we know of at least from the scriptures, is a, is a different sort of sickness. It's not, uh, it's not what we might think of, Alzheimer's or, or cancer or some other degenerative disease. No, David's sin sick, uh, at least the, the, the instance that we have in the scriptures, and that's in Second Samuel chapter 12. So we'll turn there. So we've seen the proverb. We've seen the moral of the story. Now we're going to dive into David's own experience of this being worked out in his life. But to do that, we have to start, uh, we have to start a little bit earlier with the events themselves. Second Samuel 12, please, if you don't mind, turn there with me. 2 Samuel chapter 12, I'm going to read a portion of the chapter. Now really, I could read much, much more to give us context. I can't really do that with time, but um, perhaps those unfamiliar with the, with the story might do well to reread in their own time um, David's life, especially from chapter 11 onward. But in chapter 12, after being rebuked by David for his sin and being told of how the Lord will bring um, a very fierce rod of discipline upon David for his sin, David, um, David is in distress. From verse 15 on, Nathan went to his house it says, the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. He became sick. Therefore, David sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted, went in and lay all night on the ground. The elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground. But he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, he spoke, we spoke to him. He did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? We may do himself some harm. He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. And David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child when he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, well, the child was still alive. I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Well, David, perhaps, is at the lowest point in his life. And he's so distraught, he lies on the ground for, I think, I think it says, a week. People are coming and going from within his household. They're whispering. 
and no doubt they have realized what exactly has happened here. They are aware of David's sin. Of course, David, David uh, involved some of his own servants in the matter. And, uh, and, and, and these sorts of events, I, I think, are likely in the background of what we read in Psalm 41. The whispering, those coming in and out, and as he lies on the ground, they say... When will he die and his name perish? Verse 6, when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Now, what I found interesting in studying this is uh, where it's translated a deadly thing. The word there is actually Belial. Um, and some people will debate whether or not it could have had any sort of demonic connotation at this point in, um, in the Jews' history. But, uh, but no doubt with the sin of Saul, what happens afterwards is Saul is uh, possessed by an evil spirit. And his downfall just goes like that, doesn't it? Well... Perhaps what some of his servants are thinking following this sin of his is David has met his end. Perhaps they're thinking and they're saying, and maybe even happily so with what he's done. Perhaps they're thinking he's demonized, he's deserted, he's doomed to death. It goes on in those verses to say in verse 9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And um, I mentioned earlier the grandfather. Well, one of David's closest, probably closest friends, certainly closest advisor, was a man by the name of uh, Ahithophel. And when you pay attention to some of the details given in, um, in 2 Samuel and in some of the genealogies of other books, it, it becomes clear uh, that Ahithophel was actually the grandfather of Bathsheba. And so it, leaves, it doesn't leave us guessing why perhaps Ahithophel may have been motivated to rise up against King David. Ahithophel joins Absalom later on in a rebellion against David, leading the way with some of the plotting and the scheming to bring David down. This would have been a man who was very close, perhaps even a dear friend, and, um, and a man who ate with him, no doubt, many times. Well, this close friend that David trusted for his counsel is uh, a chief character in, his, um, in the rebellion against him, along with his own dear son, Absalom. You can imagine the pain of, uh, of David, uh, seeing his household fall apart as a result of his sin. And he cries out in verse 4, and again in verse 10. He says in verse 4, As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me, 
Heal me, for I have sinned against you. He says in verse 10, But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. David acknowledges his sin. It's important to notice that. He acknowledges his sin. What is happening is a result of his sin against the Lord. Grave sin, murder, adultery, deceitfully trying to cover some of it up. When Nathan points it out, he acknowledges his sin. In fact, he submits himself before the discipline of the Lord. And he even worships God amid the greatest loss. And yet, nonetheless, he's caught in the mess that he's made, isn't he? So he cries out to God for grace. He cries out to God for grace. He has the audacity, even you might say, to cry out for grace. And God gives it to him. God is gracious, as we'll see. And as we know from the rest of the story, don't we, how things end up turning out. Perhaps, maybe you're not familiar with some of the other details of the story. Um, Eventually, the rebellion is squashed, and David does return to his throne securely. And Ahithophel, this man who plotted against him, the the grandfather, uh, it seems, of Bathsheba, uh, is hanged. He hangs himself. And what is so, uh, so fascinating to me is that the Lord Jesus Christ actually quotes from this verse in, in our text, verse 9, as he discusses his own demise with his disciples at the Last Supper. John chapter 13. Please turn to John chapter 13 with me. And this really is a eye-opening. In John chapter 13, David sees himself, or sorry, Jesus sees himself as the greater David. And David's own um, situation as a, as, a, as a precursor, a prefiguration, a, a, a model, a type of what Christ himself will experience. Of course, the difference is Christ does not suffer for his own sin. He suffers for our sin. Christ does not receive uh, rebellion and sedition because of his own sin, but on the contrary, he is the Savior. Well, in John chapter 13, at the Last Supper, Jesus is just finishing up washing the disciples' feet. I'll read from verse 18. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate me, ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place. That when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And what happens immediately after that? Jesus says in verse 26, It is he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. That's the one who will betray him. 
He dips the morsel. He gave it to Judas. Judas leaves quickly, and we know what happens from there, right? Judas betrays Jesus Christ with a kiss for 30 pieces of silver. He hands over the Son of God to be crucified, his own friend, his own king. Treason. And um, Christ sees in that uh, uh, foreshadowing in this, te- in this text. Although, as I was saying, the, the, the prefiguration with David far, far pales in, in comparison to the, the horror of the betrayal of, of Jesus Christ, our King. Jesus Christ was perfect. He was sinless. And his own friend, And some of his own family disbelieved him. But his own friend handed him over to be killed. His disciples abandoned him. They gossiped about him um, in the city. And when he was on the cross, they slandered him. They insulted him. And he hung there and suffered and died and bled for us. And what is... uh, I don't know if scandal is the right word or not. I, I kind of debate that, to be honest. But truly, what is so shocking about this all is that this is how God justifies the ungodly. God justifies the ungodly. David and anyone else who cries out for his grace, adulterers, murderers, God justifies the ungodly. Anyone who cries out for his grace, and he does so through the death of his own son, Jesus Christ, who willingly endures this all for our sake. And yet it doesn't end with Christ's crucifixion. Like David, Jesus' throne is restored. He is raised up. David cries, raise me up that I may repay them. And like Ahithophel, Judas is Judas hangs himself. And David, or Jesus like David, ascends on high. His his honor is restored. And Christ brings repayment for those who don't repent. Those who don't forsake their sedition, forsake their rebellion, and bow their knee to him. And so the, the, the psalm concludes with this Praise, verse 11 and 12. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. David looks back and he sees this as a demonstration of God's own grace, his own delight in him. He knows the eternal implications of of all this. This isn't purely related to this life now. He says, set me in your presence forever. You see, the truth is that many who pray are not healed in this life, but Christian, you will be healed at the resurrection from the dead. There will be no more pain or suffering or illness or sickness anymore. And God will, may not always grant us uh, 
victory over those who may smear us or slander us or betray us now, but on the last day, he will grant, he will grant vindication. He will grant triumph over our enemies, whether that's uh, physical enemies or, or the greatest enemy of all, which is death. God will grant triumph in the end. But know what David says. He knows that God delights in him. See, part of what's so tricky about um, this psalm is that when we think about some of the characters and we think about David and what he has done, we think, how could this be? Saul died and David was delivered. Absalom and Ahithophel likewise died. Were they better than David? David is a recipient of God's unmerited grace. That is the explanation. God sovereignly bestows his grace upon David. He delights in him. David cries out for mercy, and he receives mercy, abundant mercy from the Lord for his sin. I think of the, the song, Grace Greater Than All Our Sin. God's grace is greater than our sin. And so, brothers and sisters, what can we say about all this? What, what can we learn for this? Have you made a mess of things in your life, perhaps, because of your sin? I mean, truth be told, we may not always make big messes, but we certainly make a lot of little ones. Some of us do make big messes, like David did, to a man, perhaps, whose gambling is ruining him financially. God extends grace to those who call out for mercy. To a woman whose abortion haunts her years later, grace is available to her. She calls out for mercy to God. To a husband whose anger is destroying his family or a woman who's caught in adultery, there is grace in the mess that you've made in your sin. It doesn't necessarily say that the mess disappears, but certainly not immediately. But the Lord delivers, and the Lord will restore eventually, certainly come glory. There is grace at the cross for you and for me, brothers and sisters. And so we must confess our sin, humble ourselves, as David did, before a holy God and call on his name for mercy. If, and if you're here, or if you're tuning in perhaps um, online, and you haven't cried out to God for mercy, consider your sin. Consider the mess that it makes for you. Consider the offense and the scandal of it all. And come before your maker and ask him for grace. God is gracious. And it's not because you deserve it. It's because Christ came and died on the cross and bled so that we might have our sin taken away and receive his righteousness and be saved as a gift. And may we also not heap uh, gossip and condemnation and uh, scorn upon those, I mean, not just unbelievers, but even Christians who sin 
and repent of their sin and humble themselves and turn to God for grace. May we not gloat over them in their distress or gossip about them, but may we compassionately remind them of the grace of God to those who repent. See, the, 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 the scandal, the shocking thing is this. God justifies the ungodly through the death of his son. May we ourselves be sick of our own sin and show mercy to those who are perishing. The, to the slandered, to the scandalized, to the sin sick, brothers and sisters, God extends grace to you. May we rejoice in that grace and may we look forward to the day where we, like David, are set in his presence forever. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that your grace is so, so great, so matchless. It is impossible for us to quantify how much grace you show us. One sin would have landed us in hell for eternity, and yet we sin day by day, moment by moment, and yet you extend grace towards us. Oh God, may we never lose sight of how precious your grace is and what it cost you in sending your son to the cross for us. And Lord, may this motivate us also to be a people who show mercy to those around. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Conclude with one final hymn, A Sovereign Protector. I